If you're new here today, just want to let you know our, our vision statement is really, really simple. It's three simple words, every person matters. I don't know what you've come from this past week, don't know what you're bringing into church today, don't know what heartache you are fighting right now, but wherever you are, we, we know you matter so deeply to God, you matter deeply to us, and if there's anything that we can do to help you find community, uh, we pray that you would find community here. We pray probably even more than that, that you would find God to be worthy of your worship and you would have joy in connecting with him today as he loves you right where you are today. God's heart is most clearly, perhaps most passionately, perhaps most intensely seen for his people when those people seem to be furthest from him. We see this in the prophets again and again. When his people are, are very far from him, that they've wandered from the way they are supposed to live and supposed to worship, it's in those moments that God is most calling his people back to a heart of worship. This morning, while well, we begin kind of a three-week section in our series titled God's Story, Our Story, in which we're looking at the overarching story of the Bible and how it relates to, to our story. And, and we look at three weeks here, starting today, in which we seek to understand a little bit more about the portion of Scripture that is probably least read in our Bibles. It's the prophets that begin in Isaiah and then go all the way to Malachi there are a couple other little historical books in the midst of that as well, but basically from Isaiah to Malachi, you have the prophets of the Old Testament, and many of us don't read them at all. And why is that? Because they're redundant, and they speak in a language that we oftentimes can't really understand, and they speak with anguish of heart that is so intense and so passionate at times, and sometimes so angry that it's, it's just hard to read at times. But i got to tell you, I love the prophets. And the reason that I love this portion of Scripture is because we see God in His most passionate demeanor, bringing people back to His heart of worship, bringing people back to His heart of justice, and bringing people back to His heart for the world. Because Israel's at a place at this portion of God's story that they have kind of neglected those three critical items to God. His heart for worship, his heart for justice, and his heart for the world. And so what we'll do here these next uh, three Sundays is just give you kind of a sampling of this portion of Scripture. And I really hope that you're also reading the little green handout that we gave many, many weeks back that takes us through the Bible in a year. It's not through all the different chapters in the Bible. It's just one or two chapters per day. But if you take five to ten minutes per day reading the prophets from, those Bible, from that Bible reading plan, you'll have a lot more of the sense of God's heart in the prophets. Now, how do we get to this point where God's people are in exile and the prophets are speaking this passionate language to them. Let's just take a moment, as we've done a number of times in this series, to review where we've been as we've traveled through God's story and understanding our story. You see a number of different icons on your insert and then up on the screen here. It began with Genesis and the gift of God's creation. 
that God made the heavens and the earth, and then he made humankind, men and women alike, in his image and in his likeness, as the pinnacle of his creation was humanity. And all was good as humanity was reflecting God's creativity and co-reigning with him and tending to the garden, tending to paradise for two chapters. Until they fell, of course. And with the fall, they began to live outside of the proper boundaries that God would give them for their own flourishing. And living outside of boundaries, they experienced consequences and eventually the Lord's discipline, and they were exiled out of that Garden of Eden, that paradise that they had enjoyed. That's what we call the fall. And the original ancestors fell into it, and guess what? We would have too. Because there's something in us that looks out for me, that looks out for my interests as opposed to the interests of others and kind of wants to fight against God. It's part of our nature, unfortunately, that we always have to bring back to the cross. And so after the fall, there is the flood, but because humanity continues to disintegrate and and, and God floods the, the earth and Uh, That's during the time of Noah, and things continue to go from bad to worse up to the time of the Tower of Babel, in which people are redeveloped, and there's many different languages, and God scatters them, scatters their different languages. He gives them many languages and scatters them as they're seeking to build up a tower, not just to be creative, but, but to show we are gods in our own rights. And that's Genesis 11. Then you get through the rest of Genesis, critical book in your Bible, by understanding just four names, these patriarchs. Remember what they are? Abraham, and then his son Isaac, and then after Isaac you have Jacob, and after Jacob you have Joseph. And that takes you to the end of the book of Genesis when the people of God, a small clan, a small family who have been blessed to be a blessing to the world around them are now in Egypt. And things are actually going well for them at the beginning, but then eventually they start to get enslaved by Egypt. And for many, many years they are in slavery until a man named Moses cries out to God on behalf of his people and says, God, would you please come and rescue us? And Genesis 3 is this beautiful turning, excuse me, Exodus 3 is a beautiful turning point in the Bible in which God hears their cry. He's moved with compassion to his heart, and he listens to their mourning, and he says, I am coming down to act on their behalf, and they are free, and that's Exodus, and they go through the Red Sea and the wilderness wanderings until a man named Joshua brings them into the long-awaited promised land, and things are good there in the promised land for a season until they come to a period called the Judges, when things get not so good again. Do you hear a repeated theme? It's kind of like our lives. And they start spiraling out of control, and the repeated refrain in the book of Judges is, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And at the end of the time, they're asking God, would you just make us like all the other nations? I know you want us to be a blessing. I know you want us to be different. But just, can we just be like everyone else? We want to be followers. Just give us a king so we can be like all the other nations. And God says, okay, careful what you ask for. And he gives them some kings, and most of the time they're not too good. A couple times they're really, really wonderful, but on a number of occasions, usually they're not too good. And this leads to a kingdom split. We talked about this a number of weeks ago, a kingdom split where you have a house divided and civil war, and the people of Israel all of a sudden become two nations And you have Israel or Ephraim to to the north, and you have Judah to the south. And these two kingdoms are living separate from one another for 
many, many years until the northern people, the kingdom of Israel, are attacked by the Assyrian kingdom and they are taken down and they go into exile for 200 years. And then sometime later, the southern kingdom of Judah and with it Jerusalem and the temple is attacked by Babylon the Great. And they're sent into exile for the next 70 years and they're scattered to the four winds of what would eventually be the Holy Roman Empire, but way before that first was the Babylonian Empire, and then the Persian Empire, and the Greek Empire. They're scattered across all of that area of the Mediterranean and the ancient Near East and portions of Asia. And in that season of exile, the time leading up to exile as well, that's when the prophets were written, when they are again and again grabbing the people of God and reminding them with agony, with love, with passion, with disappointment, with surprise, please come back to the heart of God. Would you pray with me as we begin? Father in heaven, how we thank you that you are always calling us back to your heart. And that's what we want today. We want to come back to the heart of worship. We recognize that our ancestors had a season where they moved very far from your heart of worship, and perhaps some of us in this room have as well. And so we give ourselves to you right where we are, which is all you ever expect, come to you as we are, and we say, God, have your way in us. Would you lead us to worship now, even as we hear your word this morning? In Jesus' holy name, we pray together. Amen. Amen. So I'd been a Christian for about five minutes when I became pretty good friends with a man named John Ballard. And John was a little bit older than me, maybe 22, I was probably 21, and he was raised in a wonderful family, raised in the church, a great Christian background, and at age 22, he remained white hot for God. It was so great to see. We have many of those kinds of people in our church who were raised in the church, and they've remained white hot for God. Sometimes it doesn't go that way, as we all know, but, 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 but he did. And I uh, am so grateful for older, in this case just one year older, but spiritually far, far older. I'm so grateful for older men who have poured into my life at different times in my life, including right now. And so I just kind of rode on John and a couple other people's coattails for, for a while and, 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 and started to go to the church that they were going to. And on one particular Sunday, well, we went to uh, our regular church service, and to my surprise, there was a man named Brennan Manning who was speaking. You ever heard the name Brennan Manning? He's a well-known Christian author who's passed away a number of years ago, and he spoke one of the most fantastic messages on the unfathomable love of God that I've ever heard. And I was just knocked to my seat and amazed at his words and the beauty of God. And the pastor concluded the sermon by inviting us just to sit back and receive a time of worship as uh, their, their band would play, and it was just a quiet time of sitting back and receiving. It was all well and good as I was enjoying worshiping and praying to God quietly in my seats as everyone else was around me until about two or three minutes into that worship song, John Ballard stands up, and I'm right next to him. And John Ballard is six foot nine inches tall. And the next thing he does is like an elevator, he raises his arm to the sky, and he's got a wingspan of about seven foot three inches. And he's worshiping God, he's not looking at me, and I'm like, John, do you realize I have an, a reputation to uphold here? 
John, you're not thinking about me and, and, and how it feels that you're standing next to me while I'm feeling like, who is this guy? I don't want anything to do with him. Who are you and why are you worshiping like this? Where's my place to hide? I'm no longer with this guy. And I was embarrassed in this moment as John went into the heart of God and gave himself to worship and he is standing up worshiping his God as he reflects on Brendan Manning's message and I am looking for a place to hide because I'm concerned with what other people think of me. You see, John understood in that moment something that I wouldn't understand for a number of years, which is this, life is best lived before an audience of God alone. Let me say that again. This is the big idea. You've got to take this home from this morning's message. Life is best lived before an audience of God alone. And this is something the prophets are trying to get into the heart of Israel. That opposed to Baal and Ashtoreth and all of your neighbors who are trying to bring you to them, life is not best lived before any of them. It's best lived before an audience of God alone. And I was sitting there judging John and saying, why are you doing this? And think about my reputation and, uh, you know, you're kind of embarrassing me. And he said, I'm not thinking about any person's approval or disapproval of me. I'm not thinking about what any family member or friend might think about me. I'm not thinking about anyone else's opinions. What I'm doing right now is between me and the great I am that we just sang about. Between me and God. Here's a definition for worship that God wants from us. Worship is offering all of me, all of you, for God's honor. You say, God, I want to live my life for your honor, that you would be honored, that you would be exalted, that you would be seen as great by the way I live, by the way I speak, by the way I pray, by the way I sing. It's all of my life. The way I interact with others is an opportunity for worship, that others might see the light in us by the way we interact well with them. Do you know that's an opportunity for worship? By the way we pray, by the way we take communion, all of these are opportunities for us to worship. And it's really interesting to me that God sent Judah, the southern kingdom, into exile for how many years? How many was it? Seventy years which was as long as any person could expect to hopefully live in that day. And even today, when someone lives 70 years, that's considered a pretty good life. Many of us live longer than that today, but 70 years, not too long ago, was an average lifespan. And so God is saying, I believe, to us through those 70 years as well, that during our very brief earthly sojourn, this is how you're to live. You're to live as a worshiper. You're to live uh, before an audience of God alone. Life is lived best but before an audience of God alone. Let me give a sampling here from the prophets of how the prophets perpetually bring people back to, to the heart of worship. Here's one from Ezekiel. Uh, the, the prophet Ezekiel is on his knees as he sees this vision of what I believe is the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. He falls to his knees and these other creatures are worshiping God as well. And Ezekiel, as he's on his knees, it says this, Then the Spirit of God lifted me up, and I heard behind me a loud rumbling sound. And it said this, the rumbling sound said this, May the glory of the Lord be praised in his dwelling place. And whatever I do, Ezekiel, whatever you do, may the glory of the Lord be praised 
in his dwelling place. This is worship, that whatever you do, you do it unto him. You know, the Bible tells us that whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do it all for the honor and glory of God. Isn't that interesting? Even the mundane things of life, we can say, may the glory of the Lord be praised in his dwelling place. Or how about Habakkuk, another one of the minor prophets? Habakkuk, well, was written during a time where Babylon is about to invade Judah and Jerusalem is about to be taken down and well with it the temple and they're going through a period of great famine in the land and listen to what Habakkuk says. Though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no fruit, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, there's no soybeans grown in the field, there's no corn grown in the field. Even through this famine, Habakkuk says, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God, my Savior, because he is God and I am not, and he is worthy to be praised, and he's good no matter what I might be going through. The prophet Hosea and the prophet Isaiah give this very similar refrain over and over again, relates to what we just talked about at communion. I want you to show love for me, not just offer sacrifices to me. I want you to know me more than I want your burnt offerings of worship unto me. Instead, your worship is this. You show love for me. You know me, that I am your God and you are my people. You see, this has always been the heart of God, and he instituted that sacrificial system as a means to, to the end, but the heart of God has always been that we would offer our whole selves to him in worship. I love that passage in Hosea and many others. I require mercy more than I require sacrifice, but because it reminds us to be very aware of something that I call mechanical religion. Mechanical religion. What's that? It's going through the motions in religion. It's pushing the right buttons that I've been told by church over the years. These are the buttons that I must push in order to be a good Christian, in order to be a good church member. And all of us are in danger of this. All of us, I think, even drift into this from time to time. We're not going to stay white hot all the time, and that's okay. But there is a danger that we can drift into mechanical religion, and Israel certainly did that, that they gave their sacrifices, but they didn't give their heart to God. And so the question for us is we could drift into mechanical religion or legalistic religion would be something like this. When I come to the communion table, am I doing business with God? Is my prayer life robust, or is it merely ritualized prayers before meals? Have I lost my zest for God and His Word? Am I crossing it off the list or coming to His Word saying, Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening? Do I give my offerings out of duty or give them out of delight because I have this opportunity each day to worship God, and when I come to church on Sunday or whenever you might give, I have this opportunity to worship God even as I give. We fight against any legalistic, push these buttons, mechanical religion because it doesn't produce worship. It's not giving our true hearts over to God. You see, God invites us to worship not because there's some kind of lack in Him, but because 
there's a lack in us. Can I get an amen? There's a lack in us that needs worship. He invites us to worship for our own good. Think of these famous words from Jesus in Matthew chapter 11. He says, come to me, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, I don't know about you. I usually quote that verse. I usually go to that verse well, when I'm needing comfort from Christ. Anyone else? And it's certainly appropriate for that. But it's very interesting. This has to do with worship. Jesus is saying, come to me, any who are weary and burdened, and you'll find rest for your souls in me as you yoke yourself to me. I mean, think about it. Yoke yourself to me. You remember how two ancient oxen, made an ancient but old-fashioned farming oxen, would be yoked together with a wooden implement called a yoke that these two necks would be tied together, and one would typically be stronger leading the, the other. That's saying, I trust in you. I go with you. Jesus is saying, hitch your wagon to me. Hitch your wagon to Jesus because my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And in contrast, anything else that we hitch our neck to, that we yoke our necks to, it will be burdensome. It will not be light. It will be heavy. And it will bring us down. It's for our own good that God invites us to worship. I'm kind of embarrassed to say this, but back in my seminary days, I I struggled a little bit with, why does God want me to worship him? Why does God want me to give him glory? Anyone else ever struggle with that? You don't have to admit it. But like, is there some kind of lack in him? Does he have low self-esteem? I'm not much. It's not that at all. I had to wrestle through that for some time, but the reason God invites us to worship, at least as I studied, is, is probably twofold. One, when we, when we worship God, when we call Him holy, when we call Him loving, when we call Him just, we're simply calling Him what He in fact is. It's like calling your father dad. It's like calling your mother mom. You're just ascribing Him the name that He is. So again, we just sang the song, The Great I Am. All that is, you're telling God who he is. You're echoing his name. But second, we worship God, again, not because there's any lack in him, but because there is a lack in us. And the simple fact is we are made to be worshipers. And we will worship something. We will all worship something. We all hitch our wagon to something. We all give our sense of security to someone or something. Could be someone else's opinions. We'll give ourselves to something. And our hearts are most satisfied. We are most at peace when we are worshiping the one that we are made for. We are most at peace when we are satisfied in him. I love the way St. Augustine put it. He said, you have made us for yourself and our hearts will never find rest. Our hearts will never find rest until we find our rest in you. So may it be so, God. May we find our rest in you. Now, the question is, how do we grow as worshipers? All of us must work out our salvation with fear and trembling, as the Apostle Paul says. So how do we intentionally 
invite certain disciplines and certain commitments to grow as worshipers. I'd like to suggest three ways that we can intentionally grow as worshipers even here starting today. Here's the first one. I will regularly turn from whatever threatens to capture my heart and I will turn toward God. I'll turn toward God as I simultaneously turn from whatever false affections threaten to capture my heart. And an idol is simply this. It's not just something that's made out of stone. It's not just something that Hindus worship. An idol is anything that captures our affections and dictates the way we think and feel. It's anything that we give our sense of security to. And so frequently, idols would include other people's opinions of us. Or for some people, their idols are their own children. Can I tell you that if you're making your children your idol, your children are not strong enough to handle that weight. They'll be crushed by that. They're not intended to be our idols. For other people, of course, sex or drugs or alcohol or food, any number of different things that capture our hearts, that we give our security to, that dictate the way we think, can become idols. For many of us, I think in our Instagram, Facebook age, someone else's life kind of becomes an idol for us. You know what I mean? You ever kind of scroll through Facebook or Instagram and you see yet another picture of someone's beachside vacation and you see a picture of their four perfect feet in front of perfect white sand. By the way, why do people take pictures of their feet on the beach? Like, I want to look at your feet. I don't want to see your feet. I don't. I don't. But we idolize that. Give me that perfect family. Give me that perfect vacation. Give me those perfect feet. Listen, they don't have a perfect life. They have a messed up life just like you do. They are people in process just like we are. But we get into this space, I think, particularly with social media, that we begin envying other people's lives. And if we envy them enough, they can become a source of idolatry for us. Idolatry is a really, really interesting thing. It subtly creeps into our hearts, and then we start to take on whatever it is that we are looking up to too much. So we're looking up to other people's opinions too much. We, be, we become dictated by their opinions. We, we, we live for people's approval, and then we die for their rejection, don't we? As Mama used to say to me, you are what you eat, Adrian. You, you become like whatever you are gazing upon. Psalm 115 says this so beautifully. It says, those who make them will be like them, and so will all who trust in them. So those who make idols actually become like those idols that they make. Again, you, you worship other people's approval, you, you start to live for their approval, and you start to die for their rejection. You, you focus so much on the outside of looking a certain way for other people to see. As Jesus said, you focus so much on the outside of the cup. Well, guess what? We won't be focusing on the inside of the cup. And so what happens? You become like that. You focus on the outside in other people. We've all known people who focus so much on money. They idolize money and the things that it buys. And isn't it interesting that time and time again, as you watch those people across decades, what happens to them? They become greedy and materialistic, don't they? We become like whatever it is that we worship. 
I've been very, very fortunate across many years to have many friends from different religions. And I've had many, many Muslim friends, and I'm thankful that most Muslims are not violent, but I'm not at all surprised that many Muslims are violent when they read the Quran and worship Allah and worship Muhammad, who was incredibly violent. We become like whatever we choose to worship. Do you understand? That's why we are so grateful that we are invited to worship the God who is revealed in Jesus Christ our Lord so that as we follow him, as we emulate him on a day in and day out basis, we begin to take on his character into ourselves. We become like whatever it is we worship. So what is your habit for regularly turning from whatever threatens to capture your heart and turning toward the living God? Many years ago in 2011, I recognized in the midst of one of the most roller coaster Denver Bronco seasons that I had ever experienced that something false had captured my heart. And it was this Denver Bronco season that started off one in five until all of a sudden this man took over, and his name is Tim Tebow, and for the next seven or eight games, they won all of them. And it was the most mind-blowing, inexplicable thing where in the first half, he would throw these passes into the dirt. And then the second half, he would do these mind-blowing scrambles into nowhere, and they would always come from behind in almost miraculous fashion. They would win. And this was a man of incredible integrity and incredible character, and he was being besmirched constantly by the media because of that. And I found my blood pressure rising as people were criticizing him. And then I, I found my joy rising when the Broncos would win. And he would succeed, and my joy plummeting to the ground when the Broncos would lose, and he would fail. And it was all very, very fun, and I've been a lifelong Broncos fan, so it was really, really fun. I even went back last week and watched some of those highlights. Mm -mm. <laughs> it, it was very fun for that season, but I realized about two months in, this is getting totally unhealthy. How can this guy who I've never met... How can this team, who I have no influence on, be dictating my daily emotions? How can they be guiding what I'm thinking about before I go to bed and when I wake up in the morning? I think all of that experience prepared me to be a Husker fan. <laughs> Sorry, couldn't help myself. But like, right? Right? Come on. There's other people who can empathize with me right now. So what did I do with that? I had to turn away from it. I turned away from it. For the next year, Tim Tebow was shipped off to another team, so I turned away from him. And I turned away from my beloved Denver Broncos for the next year. And I've had to do that with any number of things across my Christian life. Because the heart's like putty so soft, and it will be taken by something else if we're not careful. What is it for you that threatens to capture your heart that is something less than God? Again, this is how we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. I'm so thankful for the men and women in this church that I've heard from who wake up each morning, and as they wake up, they sing a hymn. Or they turn on a favorite worship song, which leads them into their, their prayer chair time, their time to stay tuned in with God. 
and others that I've heard from in this room who wake up and the very first thing they do is take out their journal and write down a few things that they have to give thanks to God. A few ways to praise God. And the moment we do that, no matter how far we've been from God, you've got to understand the heart of God is this. Once again, far from Hosea, he says, I am now going to allure her. I'm going to whisper to her. I'm going to plant her for myself in the land. I will show my love to the one called not my loved one. And I will say to those who are called not my people, Israel who has turned from me, I'm going to say you are my people and I am your God. He's going to say that to us, even if we've turned from him, even if we've been rebellious to him, even if we've backslidden or we've never actually bowed our knee to Christ, the moment we turn to him, those called not my people are now called my people. This is the heart of God. No matter where you are today, no matter how far you are from God today, you're invited to leave less wild lovers and come back to the heart of God. Second, if you want to grow as a worshiper, to grow as a worshiper, it is absolutely critical that we choose to say yes to God even when our circumstances stink. Life's just so hard, right? I mean, there is so much pain in this world. But we have to believe that our God is bigger than our problems. I I, I meet so many people Across all the years I've been a pastor, I meet so many people whose faith is about this thick. I mean, it's not much more than skin deep. I'm not at all surprised, well, when I meet those folks one year and their faith is this thin and they go through another tragic experience, which will come, or they go through another unanswered prayer, and God doesn't answer all our prayers just the way we want it, just when we want it, and so that will come too and they lose their faith. Or they, they backslide into a lifestyle that is not healthy for them. Or they backslide into a belief system of kind of worshiping God, kind of worshiping something else. You know these people. You, you meet these people too. We are all, if we're not careful, careful, susceptible. And so we say, will I worship God when things are not good? Will I worship Him when circumstances stink when he doesn't give me the answer prayer that I want immediately. A person that I look up to often, well, when I think about this, also comes from the prophets. His name is Jeremiah. And if you know Jeremiah's story, he was given one of the most difficult, perhaps the most difficult ministry assignment I have ever heard of. He was told, you are going to preach repentance and invitation back to God to the people of Judah for the entirety of your life, Jeremiah. And guess what? They ain't going to listen to a word you say. In fact, they're going to fight against you. They're going to ignore you. They're going to stand against you. They're going to fight against you. But I've set you apart from birth for this very purpose. I mean, you think your job is lousy. That's what he had to do. That was his life calling. And yet in that, he comes to this realization in, in, in Jeremiah 17 Beautiful, beautiful passages. Blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence is in the Lord. Blessed is that one because that one will be like a tree who is planted by the waters, whose roots go down to the streams. He does not fear when the heat of life comes his way. Don't you want to be like that tree? 
Okay, the way you become that, the way we move from tumbleweed on the side of the highway to an oak tree next to a stream is embracing the school of discipleship called suffering. It's as we embrace the school of discipleship called suffering, we say, God, I'm going to praise you even through these terrible circumstances that God changes us and conforms us to the likeness of his son, that he brings about perseverance and character and hope, which never disappoints us. It's embracing this school of discipleship, going through the fire and knowing that God is with us, declaring, as for me and my house, no matter what I go through, as for me and my house, I'm going to serve the Lord. How about you? Moreover, no matter what we might be going through today, do you know there's something you can give thanks for? There always is. There's always something for which we can give God praise. He created you. He created this world. He knew just what he, did, what he was doing when he created you. And he did a great job. He loves you with an everlasting love. And so you can receive his love. And you can even love yourself as you know you were loved that much by God. You're redeemed. You're bought with the price by Jesus who gave his body and blood for you to bring you to God. You're filled with the Holy Spirit if you are a follower of Christ, and he will never leave you. He will never forsake you. And so we say yes to God, even when our circumstances are lousy. And then finally, what I learned from my good friend John Ballard was this. Adrian, you got to learn how to praise God even when your friends and your family will not. We're all going to have friends and family who will not. I have many. Are you going to choose to do what I did back in the day, which is roll my eyes and snicker, or do what John Ballard did back in the day, which is say, I'm not thinking about him. I'm thinking about him. How could he do that? Because he was living the best possible life before an audience of God alone. This is what we want here at Carney E. Free. This is what I want for you. This is what I want for me. Not a mediocre life, not an eek by and get through it life. I want a life of more self abandon I want a life of more freedom. If you're anything like me, we want a life of more hope. We want a life of more purpose. We want a life of more joy. We want a life of more peace. And it happens as we don't give two red pennies about what the person next to us might think. And we choose Monday through Sunday, life is lived best before an audience of God alone. Would you pray with me? Father, how we thank you that we live our lives before you and not another. How grateful we are for your mercy to us that you forgive us as far as the east is from the west. You forgive us completely and you invite us to worship you with all that we have. And Father, we know that Sunday morning is just a start, but it's an important start to each and every week. That we would say here on the first day of the week, God, on the on the day that Jesus rose from the grave, we will give you glory, we will give you honor, we will give you praise. And I know that there are friends in this room who are going through really challenging times right now, but I ask God that you give them joy, 
in praising you today. And I pray even more importantly, though, than just today, that throughout this week, Lord, you would set apart windows for us to worship you for your honor and for our heart's content. How we need it, Lord. How we need to sing of the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God.